0: The ADA protects individuals with disabilities from discrimination in all kinds of services, programs, and activities that are offered by government entities.
1: This is Anna Zivarts, the Director of the Disability Mobility Initiative, a non-driver organizing program of Disability Rights Washington. The Road is the Sidewalk is a podcast series we're producing in collaboration with Zach Hertz, a blind podcaster from Kitsap County, Washington. In our advocacy work with non-drivers from communities throughout Washington State, we hear a lot about how inaccessible sidewalks, crossings, and transit stops prevent disabled non-drivers from accessing our communities. After the Americans with Disabilities Act passed more than 30 years ago, The cities and counties we live in should have developed plans about how they were going to address these barriers in our public right-of-way. However, not only do many of these barriers remain, lots of communities haven't created inventories of barriers or timelines for when they plan to fix them. Kitsap County, where we're focusing our series, is one jurisdiction with no such plan. In this series, you'll hear interviews with disabled community members about how this lack of access impacts their lives, as well as interviews with researchers who are working on sidewalk accessibility. Episode four, Anat. Hello,
0: my name is Anat Kaspi. I'm the director of the Tasker Center for Accessible Technology, which is part of the Paul G. Allen Computer Science and Engineering School at uh, the University of Washington.
2: Would you mind telling us how you came to work on accessibility?
0: So, I actually had 12 years' experience in the laboratory and medical instrumentation business. And for many years as an engineer, i grew to understand that we're not designing for all potential users and so uh, more and more i grew into a sort of middle management role and tried to look at potential discriminatory practices that we have when we're designing and engineering both laboratory equipment, essentially who are we assuming is going to be using these instruments, as well um, as medical instrumentation. A number of things happened to me in my personal life, as well as having a daughter who has a disability, and my eyes really opened up to the different ways in which we've become really good at medicalizing people with disabilities and continuing life, but not really addressing quality of life. And so I had the opportunity to found the uh, center, the Tasker Center for Accessible Technology. And it's been great to be within the Paul G. Allen School because the school really promotes the use of the research outcomes that we have and actually developing and deploying it to real people in real hands. And so that's what we do at the Tasker Center.
2: Could you talk about the history of the ADA in regards to public right-of-way and what makes them accessible or inaccessible?
0: Sure. So the public right-of-way I will call Prow, and that addresses all the paths that are not necessarily automobile-oriented. So public right-of-way, our sidewalk, footpaths, and ways to connect on the ground without using a car um, or other kinds of automobiles. And the ADA protects individuals with disabilities from discrimination in all kinds of services, programs, and activities that are offered by government entities. So the ADA relates to the public right-of-way in just that that the public right-of-way is one of the programs and services offered by government entities and so it is covered under the ada the ada protects individuals with disabilities from all kinds of discrimination and so the uh, addressing discrimination in the public right-of-way is one uh, way to Uh, comply with the ADA. But I should note that colleges and universities that receive any kind of public funding also have to comply with these Title II requirements. And in fact, before the ADA, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 also applied to these publicly funded entities and also had some addressing of public right-of-way. So it's not that the ADA is the only law out there that has specific requirements about the public right-of-way and compliance for any government-related and government-funded programs.
2: Why do ADA transition plans exist? How are they developed and what is their purpose?
0: So, ADA transition plans nominally exist due to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, Title II of the ADA requires a transition plan to provide program accessibility for people with disabilities, and we already said that program accessibility encompasses any discrimination in services programs and other activities that are provided by government funded entities. So what is it that a transition plan requires? It looks at state and local government entities as well as some of these colleges and universities that are government funded and requires them to provide program accessibility for people with disabilities. So entities have to first identify how their uh, policies or physical conditions might be discriminatory meaning how are the current conditions preventing access to programs and services then they need to develop a transition plan to continue that assessment be able to do these self-evaluations and then also offer additional elements to make a feasible plan for correcting those barriers
2: Could you tell us some of the key elements we would find in an ADA transition plan?
0: Yeah, so a transition plan is essentially a plan for how that department, the agency, or a particular district will become compliant with ADA guidance. And we can talk about compliance in just a minute. It has to be a feasible plan and it has to have some kind of reasonable time frame for implementation. And according to the law, the ADA, there are four steps to a transition plan. First, you have to list the physical barriers that prevent people from accessing programs or services. Second, you have to describe how those barriers are going to be removed. And three, you have to establish a schedule on how you're gonna remove these barriers, You have to identify sort of interim milestones for um, how the transition periods are going to work and sort of define your overall plan in very you know time oriented terms and finally you have to identify the official or officials that would be responsible for that plan's implementation so it's very much targeted at like figure out what your barriers are identify ways in which you prioritize, which ones will be removed and in what order, and then finally give us a timely plan on how those barriers will be removed.
2: Could you give me an example of common barriers?
0: Yeah, so some of the really obvious ones are, for example, everybody talks about curb ramps because they are important in uh, transitioning from the sidewalk environments into crossings. There are other barriers that may exist along the public right of way for example non-smooth surfaces might be a barrier for people as they're traveling along these paths and also there are the fears of approaching the physical environment which may also be a barrier but it tends to be that these transition plans really just look at very specific physical features in the environment. And unfortunately, the really easy ones to count are the ones that tend to be emphasized, like curb ramps, like these um, incursions on the sidewalks and, and sidewalk issues, like poles in the middle of the sidewalk, like lack of accessible pedestrian signals. Those are the types of things that are easy to count and therefore easy to put into a plan that you we're know, going to address.
2: Would you mind telling us about your mapping work, and what jurisdictions use to measure their data, and what data is important for a disabled persons to know if a route is accessible or inaccessible?
0: So before I start about talking about my own mapping work, let's actually start by talking about transportation and transit. One way to look at our urban and rural communities and how we design spaces, uh, which we call the built environment. These are the physical spaces designed and built by people, and they can range in the scale of what you're talking about when you're talking about the built environment. It could be the whole city, it could be neighborhoods, it could be buildings, homes, streets, and so on. So we can look at all these things we build Um, to service different communities as the way we use space in a manner that has an impact on quality of life, on public health, and on overall life outcomes. So if we're talking about real accessibility in terms of not just like, oh, did I make it from the sidewalk to this crossing? but rather do I have daily access to all the amenities and community services that exist in my community? We wanna talk about big picture traversability, right? The complete trip. And so we want to move away from looking at all this stuff in a piecemeal kind of way, which is a lot of times how these transition plans are done. So what do I mean? We can look at a specific intersection, let's say a four-way intersection, and we can see that there are four corners there. And assuming all the crossings are allowable, then there are eight opportunities for curb ramps. So we can look at each one piecewise and we can say, okay, out of eight opportunities for curb ramps, four or 50% are missing. Okay, so if you didn't tell me which of the four are missing, I don't actually know about the big picture traversability of that intersection for a person who needs a curb ramp. And again, I focus on curb ramps because it's a really um, notable sort of universally understood um, conveyance or uh, accessibility feature in the environment. But there are a, a whole host of other types of barriers that exist for different people with diverse needs about the environment. So going back to this curb ramp okay so you told me four out of eight opportunities are missing here but if you didn't tell me which of the four are missing i can't tell if this intersection can actually service a person who needs to get through this intersection because if each of the four corners has at least one curb ramp then while that's not ideal the intersection is still traversable to that wheelchair user or stroller user or walker because in each case they can still descend into the street from each corner and travel to their destination so big picture connectivity is still there it's not safe it might not be comfortable but at least that traversal is possible but imagine if back to the four curb ramps that are missing imagine that one corner has two in either direction and it's totally correct and actually guides people in the direction they're supposed to be crossing, and another corner has none. Then that corner that has none, it becomes an accessibility island. It's a barrier for that person or traveler because of some choice that some designer and engineer made when that corner was built. And in both cases, and if we were just mapping or counting the number of curb ramps out of the possible no- number of total curb ramps, we will come out with the same count or the same data. However, if I really want to understand the reach of different travelers through that community, through that intersection, it's really crucial that we understand each piece of infrastructure within its context of the larger transportation network. So I said this word, transportation network, and I should kind of define what I mean by that. We have different modes of travel in our communities. We have micro-mobility, we have rideshare, we have automobile, we have private cars, we have a scheduled bus system, we have flexible bus, uh, buses and shuttles. We have different infrastructure to support those modes. And so automobile roads have been the most invested and prominent pieces of the travel network. So when we look at digital maps that we have in phones today, for example, they're actually just representing the automobile network because they, and now I'm going to air quote, know each road and how it's broken up into blocks and which portions of the roads are connected. So that connectivity is super important because if there's a roadblock like when during the pandemic there were roadblocks set up for walking streets, then this disconnects portions of the network. And connectivity and disconnectivity are also obviously really important in other parts of the transportation network, like on sidewalks and on bike lanes. But many times that information is not mapped or included in any kind of layer that people can analyze. So while we can tell that a car with with very high granularity in most of the United States we can tell where a car could or could not reach through roads we totally lack that level of detail in having standardized scalable knowledge about our pedestrian ways and paths and how they connect so that's why you get such hokey routes for example from routing applications on your phone when it comes to walking mode because when you press walking mode. They just assume that you're a slow moving car along the roadways that have that connected transportation layer but we don't have that connected transportation layer for pedestrian ways and the public right of way. And it's really hard for those routing applications to route people who have any specific needs about the built environment. I'm not just talking about accessibility. It's like, you know, if I'm allergic to specific types of pollen, I wanna avoid big hills, I want smooth surfaces, I want more landmarks along my way. We just don't have that kind of information about our pedestrian pathways and how they all connect to provide that kind of information to travelers. Back to your question, my team at the Tasker Center for Accessible Technology and our collaborators at uh, UW Track are really focused on increasing equity in transportation and mobility data by um, creating data and specifically standardized consistent data about all parts of the transportation network and we focus on sidewalks and how they connect to other sidewalks and how they connect to crossings and also we include transit stations and the network of paths within stations to get to a platform for example or to get to a ticket reader all these are parts of the network that are currently not at all represented in digital maps or at least not in scalable standardized manners so this means that apps on your phone or your garment can't grab that data and then represent it to different travelers or customize the information for different travelers based on what their needs are so to put it plainly without this kind of networked information routers will continue to give us routes as if we're slow moving cars because they continue to give us foot directions that just follow the shortest path for cars, regardless of whether there's an actual sidewalk there or a protected lane for bikes. And they won't be able to give us any kind of personalization for those routes. And also without this information, here we are 32 years after the ADA was signed and still data is really lacking to even give us a true full picture of how inaccessible these built environments are and for whom they are inaccessible.
2: Why don't some jurisdictions have ADA transition plans? And the ones that do, we notice a huge difference in quality and the ability to understand them
0: that's a tough question so basically my personal opinion is you might say that the ada is not really legislation with teeth but let me unpack that so prior research work looking at government accountability to the ada really clearly pointed to different gaps in regulations and the guidance from the different enforcing federal agencies And also they point to the lack of data about compliance, which would enable targeted efforts at oversight and enforcement. So that is still true. I believe that to assist state and local governments with these efforts, we are overlooking an aspect in describing the gap between regulation and practice. And that is that the actual capabilities and toolings that are available for agencies to comply with the regulation don't exist. They're not pointed to by either the department of justice the department of justice does publish an ada toolkit to guide assessment and compliance effort for ada but it really focuses just on curb ramps at pedestrian crossings and that's it really later in 2011 the u.s access board published the proposed public right-of-way Accessibility Guidelines, which are commonly known as PROAG, you might have heard that name, and that was published for public comment in 2011. And while it's intended to set accessibility standards for use in the uh, public right of way and it's looked on as some kind of technical guidelines, it has still not been officially adopted by the Department of Justice as federal policy. And that's a huge gap because if you're somebody who's even with the best intentions trying to enact a transition plan and all you have is this guidance that's not actually accepted, it's been over 12 years or 11 years and you fear that once the DOJ accepts it, it might be a different specification. And so then you don't want to do any kind of work to a spec that's not, you know, policy. And so that is a huge gap. But in addition to that, you know, even assume that that was accepted. I believe that we currently don't have the capabilities and tooling available to help agencies comply with any kind of regulation. And though I don't work in policy, and having worked in this space for six years, I have opinions about the policy, but I do specifically work on creating tools to help agencies build capacity to do this kind of work, specifically with the use of data like I described before. But also we focus on building tools for community engagement around disability justice and also how to center the voices of the stakeholders that are most impacted by the lack of compliance in the way they enact transition plans.
2: Throughout the interviews we've noticed that quite a few people see missing sidewalks as a barrier to accessibility. Can you speak as to why missing sidewalks are not an ADA violation?
0: It's a huge omission, but it's really more a question of priorities and also the complex nature of investments in the built environment. So all new projects that even touch the roadways or a piece of sidewalk environment have to make sure that their project complies with sidewalk standards, and that includes building sidewalks. However, you're probably talking about what to do with all these old neighborhoods that became sort of engulfed by a municipality because of some urban sprawl and ended up with no sidewalks except for the main arterials in North Seattle, where I live, definitely that is a factor there are barely any sidewalks above northeast 85th street and you see this by walking around like you just cross 85th street and suddenly you're in no-fly zone when it comes to sidewalks or only fly zone because you don't have sidewalks so um even when considering new projects there is a complex nature for these different departments who are trying to apply different agendas and political will and they have diverse criteria and different efficiency considerations and then you have strict engineering requirements and also a host of other design processes that lend themselves to very subjective interpretation and these design teams that are supposed to be responsive to multiple and sometimes totally competing and incommensurable objectives. So the summary of that answer is that it is complicated, there are competing interests, and there's no funding specifically dedicated to accessibility. And so accessibility doesn't end up getting weighed higher than other considerations because of you know the purse you have to just politically influence people to agree with you to perform accessibility work and that just has no hold in face of all the different competing interests that are um, part and parcel of everyday life in a department of transportation somewhere
2: have you heard of people addressing this issue by saying that we should mix master pedestrian planning into ada transition planning has this worked And what do you think of it
0: honestly i think it comes down to a different aspect of capacity building so pedestrian master plans and transition plans do share common goals and values so every plan i read nowadays talks about quote accessibility or quote equity but no one defines it in the same way and there's no regulation to define it so when it comes down to making things accessible or equitable. People are just making stuff up as they go along. And it is, frankly, unfair to put this all on the shoulders of just one ADA compliance officer, because it's a bigger gap. First, uh, many practitioners are not even dedicated ADA specialists. They don't necessarily understand accessibility and the diverse needs in accessibility. And in order to push an accessibility agenda, many of them tell us that they have to make allies in other departments, strike political deals. And that means that the institutions they're working for didn't actually build a process, a checklist, a tool, some kind of practical pipeline to enact these goals and values into their process. So that's a lack of capacity. Second, um, many practitioners don't have access to their own accessibility or equity funding so they don't have any influence that they would need in order to sway decisions about accessibility third i think it's not as i said it's not always clear what is accessible because accessibility encompasses so many diverse stakeholder needs so there's a lack in the guidance like we talked about before and many practitioners are worried about using the PROAG as the technical spec because it's just a guidance and wasn't accepted by the DOJ. So, what if tomorrow the Department of Justice will approve a different set of specifications? And it's not like software where you can just fix the website or tear it down and rebuild it with new specs. Like, it takes a lot of work to tear down the built environment and rebuild. So, there's a, a fear of create accommodations that are not actually accommodating the compliance aspect. And fourth, I I think we're just starting to see this um, maybe over the past six or so years. Practitioners are engaging community more to actually learn about the community's lived experience in the jurisdiction and understand what are the priorities for making that community's lived experience more accessible at the very local level. But doing these engagements is not really something that these types of professionals are used to doing. They don't really know how to run accessible meetings. And then you tend to get the same five people voicing the same five concerns over and over, and everybody else is maybe disenfranchised from the process just because there's this lack of, there's a mismatch between what skills these ADA compliance officers bring and what they actually need in order to engage the community and fully understand the local accessibility concerns. And lastly, and this is where I think researchers can help, they don't have good geographical visualization and analysis tools to assess where inaccessibilities are, and how to prioritize one project over another. Because, as we said before, you know you can bean count all the missing curb ramps, but then if I'm the officer and I need to make the decision about which one to prioritize first, because this year I can only spend, you know, I only have enough money for 13 curb ramp installations. How do I choose out of the hundreds of thousands of missing curb ramps? Um, as we discussed, not all missing curb ramps present the same barrier or bottleneck in the context of the complete travel network. And again, I'm focusing on curb ramps because it's a, a, like a, a well-understood quantity, but this goes for all barriers in the built environment. So the, the lack of these tools to make the prioritization is really important. And finally, to predict or even assess what kind of impact Certain investments might have had, you know, people are making, you know, they invest in those 13 programs, but there's no way because the data is missing in counting what kind of difference this made in the real lives and quality of life of people in that environment and how did it increase access for people? So not having that measurability of the impact means that they can't go back later and say, hey, look, this was a really successful way of doing this. Give me more money to do more of this. So this is true both in terms of opening up new routes for people or being able to measure how many people would be able to gain utility from certain projects or even how many people versus people with disabilities might be able to benefit from different types of projects. I think all of these go into the components of what needs to be done to address these gaps between what the ADA transition plans are intended to do and the kinds of actions on the ground that we see.
2: It seems as if there's a lot of question around who is responsible for reviewing ADA transition plans and ensuring communities are working towards accessibility. Can you speak to this, and is it slowing progress?
0: So I actually think the rule is pretty clear in terms of who needs to have one. Uh, It says that jurisdictions or districts that have more than 50 agency employees are supposed to have these plans, and clearly it applies to government-funded districts or programs but um, if the department of justice doesn't have a clear guidance on what the actual technical goals and specs or the impacts for compliance might be so agencies just tend to punt on this requirement and that's why you see so many jurisdictions suddenly wake up to this requirement when a legal action by the community takes place. A little more background is that in addition to the requirements of Title II, the ADA also authorizes private citizens or their representatives to file complaints or lawsuits in cases of discrimination in the public right of way. And so, in fact, citizens aren't even required to try a resolution through complaint before they file a lawsuit. So anybody can go and file a lawsuit against the jurisdiction or the agency in saying that there are barriers that are unaddressed in the public right-of-way so therefore many jurisdictions only kick into action after complaints or lawsuits are filed because those have real serious monetary ramification of course this is a very unfortunate way by which We legislated the ADA because it contributes to bad optics for disability advocacy, and it also contributes to greater distrust between municipalities and travelers that have already been marginalized from the travel network, and it only creates even more distrust uh, among um, that population so overall. I I think it's not so much about the ambiguity. The ambiguity is in how it should be enacted. And so people are unsure on how to do it, and they just let it linger. And then they only kick into action when some legal action is taking place against them.
2: Why don't communities invest more on making their public right-of-ways accessible?
0: It comes down to money, power, and priorities, right? So the reality is that building physical things is really expensive, and sometimes there are competing interests that are sometimes totally irreconcilable, and so it's whoever's got the political will and the power of the purse that tends to win, and that's an unfortunate reality.
2: How can we make our communities more accessible? What needs to change? And who do we need to call into action?
0: there are so many components to this so the policy needs clarification we talked about that and specific accessibility funding as well but we also need clear means of enforcement that practitioners need more interaction with the community they need to learn about disability justice and be motivated to be allies to the disability community as opposed to having distrust and oppositional force And they need tools to make them successful at making changes that will really make an impact as opposed to just raising the portion of opportunities that have specific features. And finally, institutions really need to beef up their processes and consider accessibility early and often throughout the planning process. Because usually by the time somebody like an orientation and mobility specialist is brought in, or you know, I've been called in to assess certain projects before. When we get brought in for consultation, the plans are already in stage B. There's no funding or room to make any further modification. So it doesn't matter how odious the plan might be in terms of accessibility, you look at this thing and it's just like the, the ship has sailed in terms of their planning process. And it's really because these agencies didn't counter accessibility early enough and also bring people in to engage in the process, uh, not just occasionally, but throughout the entire process. It's kind of the difference, like when we think about research, when researchers used to create some kind of outcome or product and then throw it over the fence for usability testing versus enacting participatory design practices which engage people throughout all stages of the design and engineering of of whatever it is that they're doing in order to ensure the continuous usability and accessibility of those products.
2: In general, are there any certifications that one needs to evaluate projects like this?
0: There's currently no real certification. I think that part that's part of capacity building too, right? I don't think necessarily that a person with a, the lived experience can adequately speak to the experiences of all people with disabilities. So we do need to watch out for that, right? I am well aware of my limitations in terms of what I do and don't understand. Uh, with respect to accessibility. But I think a lot of times, people may not be fully aware of, you know, what do people with invisible disabilities need in the environment, that's not very commonly discussed. And so if I don't have that kind of breaths of experience with somebody in my life. I can't necessarily speak to that and certainly not evaluate a project with respect to that. So I think it's very ad hocish, and to my knowledge there's no such certification.
2: You can follow Anat's work at the University of Washington's Taskar Center for Accessible Technology.
1: Thank you for listening to The Road is the Sidewalk. The Disability Mobility Initiative continues to work with advocates, local elected leaders and agency staff to ensure that disabled non-drivers have access to our communities. If you're interested in learning more, please check out our website at dismobility.com or follow us on Twitter at Dismobility.